0: Good evening, everyone. I'm Judy Cooper, the coordinator of public programs, and we're happy to see all of you here this evening uh, to meet Robert Musil Musel, and hear him talk about his book, Rachel Carson and Her Sisters. I wanted to uh, say thank you to Baltimore Greenworks, Chris Marshall's in the back, and say thank you to them for helping um, promote this program and support this as part of their Sustainable speaker series. And it's my pleasure to um, welcome here a friend of the library, Mimi Cooper. Uh, we are not related, <laughs> but we're friends and we see each other a lot in Baltimore because we were neighbors also. So Mimi is, um, is a member of the Rachel Carson Council and she's going to um, introduce our guest speaker this evening. Most of you have seen this, haven't you? So you know that Bob's a teacher, writer, compassionate person, (laughs) physician for social responsibility, and it's been six months, Bob, since we've met, and you were speaking at the Johns Hopkins School of Public Health. That was a fun fun time. And so I've really been looking forward to this evening. Uh, I think you're a wonderful speaker, and I think this book is uh, really very special And uh, it has some Baltimore ties, Anna Bacher. Baltimorean is one of the sisters. And I told Bob I wasn't going to go through much big introduction, but you see, before you, a whole lot of people who are really, I think, sisters and brothers of Rachel. That's it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) As they say, never follow Mimi Cooper. We're done. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, It's wonderful to be here. I was thinking about Rachel Carson on the way over here because a few of you may have heard I was stuck in traffic for about an hour and a half coming from Washington. And you should know that Rachel Carson commuted all over Baltimore by bus for three different jobs while trying to get her PhD. Imagine the leading environmentalist and writer of our time stuck on the bus. Uh, going around trying to get done. Well, the, I'm sure she was quite occupied, and in imagining the oceans and the changes that we've seen and that we benefit from. I also have to tell you, irrelevantly, and I've got, it's a good thing you have a clock here because we're going to have a dinner afterwards, and I'm a hungry guy, and so because I do like to talk about this subject. But in this room, it happens somewhat irrelevantly that my best man, best friend. From college and graduate school, was the leading Poe scholar in the country, the editor of Poe Studies. Quoth the Raven, nevermore. I associate Baltimore with Edgar Allan Poe and a guy named Alex Hammond. But what I want you to do tonight is for us, as you go forth, and you have many, many connections to remind people that Rachel Carson belongs to Baltimore. She may have been born in Pennsylvania, and there's an historic house where she grew up. She may have moved finally to Silver Spring to sort of cut down on the commuting between College Park, Baltimore, and Washington. And so there's a nice house, Rachel Carson house, there. But her the depth of her maturity and her professional growth and her connections and her scientific training and the roots of her first marvelous book that I'm just going to mention a are right here, including the Enoch Pratt Library, the Hopkins Library. I don't know if she went to the Peabody, but you have to imagine that we are walking in the steps of Rachel Carson. I said when I met a couple of you that I would be bumbling because I am used to speaking to college audiences. How many of you have actually graduated already from... (laughs) Well, anyhow. I'll try not to do the bad college humor, but I'll start out and I'll say, we're going to talk about Rachel Carson and her sisters. And you can see a few glazed eyes. People start texting each other and looking down at their various handheld devices. And I usually do my Ferris Bueller's Day Off bit. Anyone, anyone, who is Rachel Carson, Bueller? They actually, you realize that's a 25-year-old movie reference that's before when today's undergraduates were born. But it is such a classic that they all start to go, and then the better students, a guy in the back. Will say, uh, environmentalist. Some someone else will say, bird spurs. No, and then someone will say, oh, oh, oh. I say, oh, you better be careful. You know, and they say, that book, that book. And I say, yes, that book. Yes, Silent Spring. I say, oh, what was it about? Mm, the environment. <laughs> Occasionally, a really good student will say, the robins. Now, not to make fun of this, um, they quickly, when they discover more about Rachel, and there are some in environmental studies and others who do know about her, they are amazed and captivated and moved and want to be inspired that there was someone so solid, so visionary, that you can read her graduation speeches today and they speak to the young people of this country because things have improved in some ways, but as you know, we still face a tremendous struggle on the environment. And so I am very, very thrilled to be here with <clears throat> an expert audience. So if you can ask me tough questions later. Now, I did want to... Um, the reason I wrote this book, uh, I should say, people say, so why did you write the book, Bob? I said, I wanted... I think we have to evacuate the building. All right, ignore all that. I'm sorry. Now we're going to get serious. The reason I wrote the book, and I'm waving it around, not to make sure that you buy copies that are for sale, and I will sign outside with a new paperback edition, but rather to focus on the picture of Rachel Carson herself. Uh, while I'm still warming up, and we have plenty of time, where is Rachel sitting? Oh, you knew the answer. <laughs> yes, no, that's right. Absolutely. Right. She's sitting on top now. I picked this photo, and it's actually how I became involved with the Rachel Carson Council. It is owned by the Rachel Carson Council, but it's a, it's a rather iconic photo of Rachel birding, looking for hawks, but she's also sitting alone on the mountaintop, like a great woman. Just as most of history is written from the point of view of great men. Leaders, generals, presidents, battles—they are the ones who made history. And occasionally, we had in more. Well, I wrote this partly to say that there is a lot of myth about Rachel Carson sitting alone on the mountain, just as there was about Moses—he didn't get to the Promised Land. Aaron thousands of others of a community of followers. Oh, we're doing a podcast. Uh Uh-oh. Thank you. I'm going to stay a little more tied to the microphone. I usually run around, but I will be good. All right. Sorry. Great man's theory of history. Moses, one of the first. But we know he wasn't alone, and he wasn't the only one being chased by the Pharaoh's chariots into the Red Sea, Thousands of people who cared as deeply about the future and their fate. Martin Luther King, who obviously referred to Moses, I have been to the mountaintop. I have seen the promised land. I may not get there with you. And he didn't. But you all know, because you're more than college students, that Martin was not alone. That there was a huge civil rights movement People that are unheard of, who risked their lives, who marched, who bled, who were shot in addition to Martin Luther King. And so I wanted to indicate that Rachel Carson is not a single person with a single book who changed all of history. Part of the myth of that comes from the way Rachel was welcomed when Silent Spring did come out in 1962. None of you are old old enough to remember when it did come out, but I can tell you that it had special editions, it was a Book of the Month Club selection, and Justice William O. Douglas, anyone, anyone, who is Justice William O. Douglas? (laughs) One of the great Supreme Court justices, as you know, hiked with Bobby Kennedy a wilderness expert, wrote many books, saved the c Canal that I bird and bike and write about today. But he said of Rachel Carson's Silent Spring, this is one of the most important books in history. This is a revolutionary book. Not since Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin has there been such a book. Well, guess what? As soon as Rachel began to testify to the U.S. Senate to Senator Abe Ribicoff, they had all heard and read Justice Douglas and they knew the story of when Harriet Beecher Stowe got to the White House in the Civil War and met Abe Lincoln and he said, so you're the little lady that started it all. Same myth. Abraham Lincoln was being nice. Harriet Beecher Stowe didn't start the anti-slavery movement. She didn't start rebellion amongst slaves. The Quakers and the slaves themselves had been concerned for a couple of hundred years before Harriet came along. She wrote a great book. What it did was spread the word beyond the small, struggling abolition movement, anti-slavery movement, those who were in the midst of this, to a broader, growing, middle-class and educated audience of people who read books. And so it went beyond just a movement issue into the mainstream of American life. And so the exact same story has happened over and over again. And Rachel Carson, I believe, is a great woman, but not the only woman. She's sitting here... First, I want you to imagine she's, of course, not only looking for hawk. She's, in my view with this picture, looking to the future, seeing who will join her, what will come after, worrying about what will happen with DDT and other substances. A Tremendous vision for what things will be like. But she's sitting, as Isaac Newton said, on the shoulders of giants. She was well aware that there were women for a hundred years who preceded her, as leading naturalists, writers, advocates, ornithologists, the Rachel Carsons of their day. The first one, without Ferris Bueller, I'm sure you know. you all are related to Susan Fenimore Cooper. That's how you know the answer to this question. This is usually a total mystery. And then I say, well, you know, James Fenimore Cooper. And they go, huh? And I'll say, didn't you see the movie Last of the Mohegans with Daniel Day-Lewis? And I realize it's another 25, 30-year-old movie. That, And then I'll say, so who is she? Dutiful daughter of James Fenimore Cooper, who only much, much later did we realize had her own very popular and successful novel, published anonymously because she was a woman, and the first great nature writing book four years before Walden. Henry was just an odd fellow up in Massachusetts when Susan Fenimore Cooper wrote Rural Hours, It is a book that is filled with observations of nature, flowers, birds, landscape, clear-cutting of logging in upstate New York, which her father and grandfather had founded Cooperstown back when it was frontier in revolutionary days. She also, being from a leading family, I just love to imagine Susan talking about someone cutting down the forests. Any boor with an axe could cut down the majestic first growth trees that provide shade and majesty for our forests. But it will be generations before such specimens live again, and even then they will not have the grandeur and the elegance of these original trees. And then she went on to explain, in Rural Hours, the ecosystem's benefits of forests and recommended to people that they begin to plant trees and forests that they had value both for the water and the land and, of course, if properly done, for some lumber. As it turns out, Susan Fenimore Cooper, toward the end of her life, became engaged with the great movement that you know, Birds were being killed and slaughtered for their feathers, and sometimes entire birds for women's hats at the turn of the 19th, the beginning of the 20th century. A younger woman named Florence Merriam Bailey became active at that time. She was our first campus organizer for the environment, Smith College, 1883. Florence Merriam Bailey started the first college Audubon Society. She brought up the great writer. John Burroughs to Smith, organized when it was much, much smaller, 75 Smithies to head out to Mount Tom with the great man, John Burroughs, and then wrote her senior thesis on the destruction of birds and then began to work for the Audubon Society and passed 10,000 petitions, signed up 75 chapters, and ultimately came to Washington and wrote the most famous Rachel Carson books of the time. Florence Merriam Bailey. That includes the first book that got us all birding, and it got Rachel to use binoculars. I recommend you, if you haunt old bookshops, or perhaps in the library, Birds Through an Opera Glass, 1889, by Florence Merriam Bailey. Her brother, Hart, was the head of the U.S. Biological Survey, they were close to Teddy Roosevelt. Hart shot and stuffed his specimens. When they were kids, Florence was horrified, and so she would go out into the yard with seed and begin to make friends with the birds and look at them in the hand, live, and then to write about them. She finally won the Brewster Medal, was a leading ornithologist around the country, and wrote one of the two first usable field guides for the birds. Not Roger Torrey Peterson, a friend of Rachel Carson, and not Frank Chapman who wrote the Eastern Guide to the Birds before Roger Torrey Peterson, but Florence Miriam Bailey's Western Guide to the Birds. She went on to lobby with Hart and work with Teddy. They all were members of the Audubon Naturalist Society, still there in Washington. It was called the D.C. Bird Club. And, as it turns out, nearly two generations Rachel Carson became a board member of the Audubon Natural Society where Florence Merriam Bailey held on until she was 88, a revered figure. And so what you're starting to see, I hope, is that all of these women form a line that Rachel was well aware of because when she was a girl, her mother, and it always does, you know, I was going to say, why did I write the book to make my mother happy? No, it was actually uh, Rachel's mom, Maria McLean. Carson was a highly educated woman for her day. Her father was a learned Presbyterian minister. She, Maria, Rachel's mom, went to the Washington Female Seminary because women couldn't have colleges. It was on the same campus and adjacent to Washington College for men, now Washington and Jefferson. But Rachel Carson's mom was so smart, so good, that she took everything they had to offer at the female seminary, including science, literature, languages, top of the class. She was so good, they let her take some courses at the men's college. She became a brilliant teacher, and as was the case in those days, as soon as she married, she had to quit. Not pregnant, no problems, just you married, you quit. And so she poured all of her learning, her deep belief in social responsibility and God's creation and caring for others, not just the little creatures, but all of us from her Presbyterian father and background into Rachel Carson. That was all part of what was called the Nature Study Movement. As science began to undercut the Bible, at least the scientific parts, and whether it was made in the Earth in Seven Days or is four billion years old, people began to look for, to understand God in nature. And Rachel, of course, took those values brought by these older women and her mother into a modern context. Her mother also took her around when she was a child and had her write little stories, draw pictures, observe and write down what she was learning about the birds. A mixture of awe, imagination, care for creation, and science. Drawn from lessons directly from a book called The Handbook of Nature Study by Anna Botsford Comstock. A Quaker woman was the first faculty member at Cornell. I have a huge copy of it at home, I didn't bring it, it was too heavy. And it was Rachel's older siblings who were getting this curriculum in their school. They were quite a bit older than Rachel. And so she was raised directly from these curricula from Anna Botsford Comstock, drawing on these earlier women, all of whom appeared in a magazine called St. Nicholas Magazine. I doubt there's anyone old enough to remember St. Nicholas in the room, other than St. Nick. But Rachel won her first prize, Uh, she won a silver medal at age 11. Mom encouraged her to write for the children's section, so she started to win national writing published prizes at age 11. Now, what you see there is the very clear beginnings of the woman who emerges on the mountaintop and who wrote Silent Spring. She combines social responsibility and strong values and caring for us, people, not just nature a connection to a wide network, an awareness of those who came before, incredible imagination, little drawn stories, winning prizes at age 11. She had never seen the sea she wanted to see and write about the sea when she was young because she read Tennyson's Locksley Hall that called her to the sea in her mind. She had never been there. And so, all of those qualities are brought into the woman who arrived in Baltimore in 1929 to go to graduate school at Johns Hopkins to pursue a PhD in biology. The year 1929 probably means something to you, and I won't do my undergraduate quiz. (laughs) It, of course, coincides directly with the beginning of the Great Depression. Rachel moved into an apartment which she rented near the Homewood campus, which is where she was going to go to graduate school in biology in 1929. It happens because she grew up essentially on a farm outside of Pittsburgh. Her mother was widowed, and there. Excuse me, that's a little later. But they had the father uh, Robert occasionally sold insurance, didn't make much money, was not much of a provider, and so Rachel arrived quite poor with a scholarship, a fellowship to Hopkins that was never enough, and so she started part-time work immediately. Rented a place in Stemmer's Run, northeast of here, not far, so her whole family could move in. Mom, dad just before he died, her single sister whose husband had sort of run off and left two kids, and Rachel, who was the sole provider for this family, while going to graduate school. And so, yes, she commuted by bus, around, she had several different positions, She taught undergraduate biology at the Homewood campus. She taught biology at the University of Maryland School of Pharmacy and Dentistry. And it still wasn't enough money, and so in her second year she went to part-time, couldn't pursue at a normal rate, and looked for and found a part-time job, half-time. So picture again, Rachel Carson caring for all her relatives, commuting by bus, and now working half-time at the Johns Hopkins School of Public Health, which was then fairly new. The benefit of that, despite the strain, is she worked directly for two of the greatest biologists of the time. A married couple, it was quite unusual, Raymond Pearl and his wife, Maud DeWitt Pearl, She's in the book. I guess I mentioned Raymond, but I tried not to. Uh, Maud was the managing editor of Human Biology, but this couple together were steeped not only in science, in evolution, in genetics, in population, in the most advanced kinds of biology, but Raymond and his wife were the first to turn against the prevailing scientific beliefs of the time in the United States called eugenics. This is on the final. It was commonplace science to believe that people were like horses, they could be bred and improved, that if you weeded out the weaklings and the imbeciles and the idiots, sterilization and the rest, you could improve the race. And so... The Pearls were the first to turn against and break with eugenics, speak against it. They joined the NAACP if it wasn't clear that they believed that humans were part of one human family. And so you again have to imagine Rachel walking in on Madison Street to then new and incredibly stirring surroundings with the greatest scientists of the time, being opened up to all of these scientific advances and sharing and reading. She always read and studied and learned what was around her, whether it was on a curriculum or in a course or not. Her scientific training was also enhanced by several other people. Mimi knows, and others of you probably do know, One of the revered figures in environmental health at Hopkins School of Public Health, where I happened to go, I commuted like Rachel, I went to the same schools as Rachel, and I worked for the Rachel Carson Council. But as they used to say in the debates, I, sir, know that you are not she. But at Hopkins, she had she probably knew. She did not take courses with Anna Bacher, but Anna was a popular, young, very rare female instructor who later did groundbreaking work on the relationship between chrome and cancer, took her classes to examine factories, went to East Baltimore, and was evidently, I did not know her, an amazingly energetic and winning person. There is a story... uh, that was told to me that basically she's taking young people around in the 80s, when she was in her 80s, I believe, to run around and look at factories. And they're panting, trying to keep up with this 80-some-odd-year-old. And this young graduate student guy says, Oh, you know, this is just amazing. Uh, I just hope that when I'm your age, I'm in your shape. And she looks at him with with wry humor, not anger, and just says, Well, I don't know how that could be. You're not in my shape now. (laughs) Um, Anna did groundbreaking work during World War II, published studies that crossed disciplines around women and work and chemicals and flex time and family leave. I have that book on my shelf as well. And then finally, at Hopkins, Rachel must have known about a woman who passed through Hopkins Medical School uh, a little before that named Dr. Alice Hamilton. I'm going to let you buy and read the book, and I don't want to you know, go way too long here. But Alice Hamilton is a towering figure, the mother founder of American environmental and occupational medicine. And before she ended up working at Hull House with poor people, where she tracked their diseases from factories, which is how she began to understand the problems with lead, and mercury, and phosphorus, and other materials, and write about it, and ultimately take on the Ethyl Lead Corporation, battle for lead-free gasoline. She did this from when she was born in Reconstruction until she died at Earth Day at 101 in 1970. A revered figure who had friends and colleagues both at Hopkins and at Harvard, and Rachel certainly would have known her toxicology text, that I used a successor version when I was there at the turn of the millennium. And so this is the atmosphere of scientific training for Rachel Carson. It still makes me angry when the people at the time, and today she still attacked, say, well, she wasn't really a scientist. You want to say, you know, you try raising the family and commuting around town and holding three jobs during the Depression when women couldn't get jobs anyhow. And so she finally stopped her PhD and got a job with the Bureau of Fisheries in Baltimore. And this is where her career began to take off. Rather simply, she was discovered, uh, she was recommended by a female, female mentor, a science professor at Chatham, where she'd been an undergraduate. Uh, and she was recommended to a guy named Elmer Higgins, who hired her first part-time to do radio scripts and writing, etc., for a project he had that no one could do in the Bureau of Fisheries. And so Rachel was writing this thing uh, about the sea. She handed it in to him, and he looks at her and says, Oh, Rachel, this just won't do. She says, Oh, really? I, I worked hard on it. And he sort of smiles, the crinkle begins. He says, oh, oh, no, it really won't do. It's much too good for a government publication. I suggest you send this to the Atlantic Monthly. She did. She ultimately got a book contract, ultimately led to her first book, Under the Sea Wind, which if you have not read, must be here in the library. It is an incredible, incredible exploration of the lives of three different creatures living under sea. Imaginatively, Rachel joins with them. You can feel their struggles as they avoid predators and what happens to them. She draws her audience with sinuous sentences and lyrical prose to feel to have a sense of wonder and awe and imagination. It's also at the same time cutting edge science and what we knew about what was in the ocean and the creatures at the time. She got the idea partly for how to create this book right here in this library where she discovered books by Henry Williamson who was a best-selling author who wrote a book called Tanka the Otter, later a movie in 1979 and Salar the Salmon, they still are bestsellers. They're still around. The prose was so amazing, and the story anthropomorphized, which scientists aren't supposed to do, of following these creatures as they struggle for life and live. Rachel thought that rather than just do a science book about the ocean or the edge of the sea, She would begin to help people understand what life was really like there. That inspiration also happened in Baltimore. And so, ultimately, the Bureau of Fisheries was put together into the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Rachel was promoted many times and worked in Washington. This is why she ultimately built and created a house in Silver Spring. Because by this time, Heading toward 1940, she was starting to work in Washington. And so the woman atop the mountaintop, in this case, this picture... Oh, I'm sorry, I keep forgetting. This picture was taken in 1945. I want you to know, if you're taking notes for the final, by this time, Rachel was with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, and has already discovered the perils of DDT. You all are quick, you do math, Silent Spring is 17 years later. She learned that from the Patuxent Wildlife Refuge and Research Center where she had been when she was in Baltimore and maintained her contacts there. And they did studies at Patuxent of this wonderful, miracle-working DDT chemical that saved lives, civilians in Italy. Who were getting typhus and RGIs, malaria in the islands with the Marines, island hopping. But no one wanted to look at the downside because it was wartime. But a few researchers, a few scientists, and a few environmental groups began to speak out in 1945. So Rachel wanted to always reach larger audiences. And that's what I'm going to ask you to do when we come on up front at the end with the Oregon call to commit your lives, to go forth from here and tell people that's what Rachel did. So she proposed an article on DDT and its perils to the Reader's Digest. She was freelancing the entire time to try and make money. She hadn't had a bestseller yet. She wrote for the Baltimore Sun constantly while she was here to get the 20 and 30 bucks that she got per article to write about the Chesapeake Bay area, even the starlings in Baltimore which she thought were misunderstood she always was for the downtrodden you know you got to understand the starlings you know but in this case she is sitting atop and trying to get out the information that ddt is harmful you know what readers digest said when she proposed an article no thank you in the polite term or in today's jargon you know boring and so Rachel turned to another subject, to the oceans, published her bestseller, The Sea Around Us. That's what allowed her to leave government service and focus intently on writing, communicating, caring about nature, and taking action about it. And so as we work to a close with Edgar Allan Poe looking down on us and Rachel Carson sitting on the mountaintop, I hope you will take away the notion, the understanding, that Rachel Carson is unique. She is a great woman, but she's not alone. She sits on the shoulders of giants. She's been trained and tutored and led by her mother and others. She has a strong sense of social responsibility from that Presbyterian background. She cares about others, people, not just birds. That's what Silent Spring is about. It's a book about the effects of DDT on humans. It starts with the birds, but it moves us, And finally, she combines that with this incredible sense of awe and imagination. She seriously believed that science without feeling, without values, would be dangerous. It's why she quoted Albert Schweitzer in her epigraph to Silent Spring, that we possibly faced our destruction. She admired this great man, again, I'm not, you don't have to tell you who he is, who in my day we made fun he wouldn't step on a bug, uh, with his clinic over in Africa winning the Nobel Peace Prize in 1952 for calling for an end to open-air nuclear testing, which Rachel Carson also cared about. She constantly took the materials of science, the best cutting-edge science available, often from Baltimore, combined it with her own sense of duty, the responsibility to speak out, and then wrote the most imaginative, compelling books and articles so that people would want to share it, but not just read, but take action. And so I am quite convinced that the legacy of Rachel Carson is not just a book. She would have admired, probably read many of the books behind me. She loved books. But she would have understood, I think, like the Enoch Pratt Library, that libraries represent a community, that they exist in neighborhoods, that they have programs, that they have live speakers, a living series. That is why Rachel Carson, when dying of breast cancer, while writing Silent Spring, while caring for her adopted, orphaned, five-year-old grandnephew, Roger, who's chairman of my board. Incredible. Incredible. That is why she turned to her friends. Imagine yourself, Marie Rodell, Erston Barnes, Shirley Briggs. I want an organization to go on, to carry my work forward before I die. And so those people, again, mostly women, Look back for the last time in the cover on the book. Was Rachel Carson alone on the mountaintop? No. This picture was taken by her close friend and colleague, Shirley Briggs. They worked together in 1945. They loved to go birding. Hawk Mountain was a special treat They cared about pesticides. And after Rachel died, and the Rachel Carson Council began, Shirley and others carried on this tradition. They fought against DDT. They had it banned. They helped to save the eagles and the ospreys. Rachel didn't live to see any of that. She didn't get to the promised land. But her followers did. We stand here tonight as followers, not only of Rachel Carson and Shirley Briggs and Susan Fenimore Cooper and Florence Marion Bailey and Anna Bacher and Dr. Alice Hamilton, a host of people who surround us and support us and look to us to carry that legacy forward, a living legacy, not a book on a shelf, not a great woman named schools and postage stamps and historic houses, but a legacy in which he imagined looking into the future that we would be there. It is why I wrote this book. It is why I want to speak about it and why I want to work on behalf of nature, and people that Rachel Carson cared so deeply about. I hope you will join me. I know many of you are already on that quest. Please, let us together carry forward from this moment forth the renewed commitment for the legacy of Rachel Carson and all who went before and we are those who go after. So thank you for having me share this with your great work and together we can do great things.
0: We have time for some questions before your dinner?
1: <laughs> yeah, I, they can never drag me away from a microphone. Let's sorry take a few
0: questions. <laughs> and we'd like to have your questions recorded also oh, as the, okay. part of the podcast. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I haven't read the book yet. Oh, okay, thank you. Um, I, I was wondering... Um, is, is, is there anything now, any other chemical that we should be worried about that's as bad as DDT now?
1: That we, yes, uh, there are plenty terms? that are as bad or worse. Um, the Rachel Carson Council and, of course, with many other good environmental groups that you know about. But th- actually, there are only a few that are really good that focus on toxic chemicals and pesticides and the like. There are some big coalitions. Um, Many of you know just one example. There's something called neonics, neonicotinoids, uh, which are sprayed, which harm. I was just looking at the bees and butterflies in my yard on the New England aster that comes out late. Um, but it harms them, but it also harms us. Roundup, used uh, widely, uh, is another. It's, it has glycophase. Uh, Got to work on my chemical names. Uh, so there are or a number of them, the problem is that we continue to manufacture chemicals without sufficient testing, thousands per year. If they are tested, the tests are often done by industry themselves and then looked at by the EPA. And so part of the reason we all are needed, just as Rachel was needed, there was a Department of Agriculture. They, were <laughs> they weren't doing their job. There were some people concerned. So, yes, there are a number of them and uh, it continues to be a serious problem.
0: Yes. I have a question, uh, of, and I have not read the uh, book yet, but the, uh, about plastic bags. That seems to be the big concern lately because they really are all over the place, and when they do go down into the water, you know, they, they don't biodegrade. And um, I didn't know if there's anything, uh, that any group that has gathered to uh, go against them. I think she would be quite concerned
1: You mean plastic in the oceans? There are a number. Um, I'd have to match up. um, I was going to say the Ocean Conservancy. There are groups like Earth Justice and others that focus on a number of these things. Um, Rachel obviously would have been concerned because one of the clear problems is for uh, wildlife in the oceans that get strangled in them or eat them and all those kinds of things. Um, And so, having written her first book, imagining the difficulties and anguish of these critters without the plastic in the ocean, she would be deeply concerned. Um, Let me just try one little embellishment on that, just so you know. um, I mentioned briefly that Rachel was concerned about nuclear weapons, nuclear power, and nuclear waste. Um, She was friends and did work during World War II with one of the great oceanographers who was working for the Navy at the time, a guy named Roger Revelle. And uh, they became friends. He then was chosen to do the biological test for the first two U.S. nuclear weapons tests, atomic bombs we called them then, at Bikini Atoll in 1946 in Operation Crossroads. We tethered surplus battleships and destroyers out in this atoll in the South Pacific, blew up one atomic bomb from under the water and dropped another from a B-29 on them. As is typical of atomic tests, there were animals, there were critters, uh, they were measuring what was happening with radiation with plants and things in in the oceans around it. Rachel read and edited all of these things that came across her desk from Roger Revelle and from 1946 onward was deeply opposed to open air, nuclear testing, and later, all kinds of testing. Um, She was invited to the Marshall Islands to go with Roger Revelle. And as another footnote, here's your Ferris Bueller. You all remember that Roger Revelle is the guy who taught Al Gore at Harvard about global climate change. Roger Revelle started a project in 1957. He got the money to help have built a thing atop a volcano in Hawaii, Mauna Loa, that was the first accurate measurements of CO2 concentrations ever. He then wrote articles about it. They had a conference where his uh, colleague, uh, Charles Keeling, who actually built and designed the facility, uh, held a conference on the dangers of CO2 accumulation. Rachel read the papers. There was a book, uh, there was a uh, a report put out by the Conservation Federation at the time. This all went to the Kennedy White House, was discussed there, and ultimately that led to the Johnson administration, when Rachel had died of cancer and John Kennedy was assassinated, making the first White House warnings about the dangers of increased CO2 and climate change in 1965. But Rachel knew about that as well. And so we, the Rachel Carson Council, have some small projects concerned with nuclear power and wildlife. when you mentioned this, I was thinking about sea turtles. Problem, plastic in the ocean. There is also a facility in Florida, uh, the St. Lucie nuclear power plant. Like all power plants, it needs huge intake, vast amounts of water to cool these hot radioactive uh, cores. In this case, it sits on the ocean and sucks in, among other things, in a mile-long intake with billions of gallon sea turtles and they are mangled, they're fed through, uh, a number are killed every year. There are larger amounts of less iconic species like grouper. I mean, who cares about grouper? Huge numbers of that. Part of the reason we're focusing on the wildlife is because it's much more difficult to convince people of the dangers of unseen leaks, uh, the danger, potential dangers from nuclear power plants, so that was a long triple answer, but thank you. The, the plastic and the sea, Rachel would have combined these things. That's the point I want to say. If you're looking at environmental groups, the best, in my view, is no, it's not the fault of any particular group. But if some understandably focus only on the parks, only on the forests, only on wilderness, only on the fish... Rachel saw these things as interrelated. That is her ecological view. It's her ethic of caring for all creatures. And that's why she would have cared about the plastic, the radiation, the toxic chemicals. She would have worried about Fukushima, et cetera. Wow. I'm sorry. How about a a question with a shorter answer? Well, actually, um, you were just going right to my question was, was there any one particular spark of an event that really, um, you know, got Rachel, you know, kind of oriented into all of her work? Because, I mean, I think of Marjorie Stoneman Douglas and the Everglades or Marjorie Corr Carr, and, you know, and all this. And then there's, there's certainly I, plenty of women in this room who, who have done, been leaders because yeah. of the one particular thing maybe have inspired them. Was there any... Thing like that, in, in well, your that you um, discovered in your yes and analysis? no, when you say her work, keep in mind that until 1962, she was best known as the best selling author of a trilogy of ocean books Under the Sea Wind, Edge of the Sea, and The Sea Around Us. And they are marvelous, they grew out of her fascination with the sea. She studied at Woods Hole Biological Laboratory while at Hopkins, she went up in the summer so on, was a marine biologist, had been drawn to the sea for a long, long time. But specifically, Silent Spring did have a particular uh, catalyst. Rachel would tell the story very nicely uh, that she had gotten a letter from a friend in Boston that robins were dying on her lawn. And so she was moved to look into the subject and began Silent Spring. Uh, to be kind to Rachel, this is a story that has uh, about as much relevance as saying that Rosa Parks was just a tired little lady who sat down on the bus in Montgomery and wouldn't get up, leaving out the fact that she had worked with the NACP, that her, that E.D. Nixon was a guy who had planned many of these things. She had studied at the left-wing Highlander School, that the John Birch Society was always saying, they are all communists over there. Well, they were pretty advanced. And so with Olga Huckins, happened to be a member of the Audubon Society. She reviewed environmental books. She was a literary editor and a friend of Rachel's and part of something called the Committee Against Mass Poisoning. She was an activist. But of course, the letter appeared. She didn't say, I'm an activist and I'm angry. You know, she said, the Robins are dying in my yard, which is, is true. They were all part of a group one of the women behind Rachel, Marjorie Spock. You will all know that it's not Mr. Spock. This is Dr. Benjamin Spock's sister Marjorie, who brought suit because her estate, which he owned with her committed life partner, another wealthy woman named Polly Richards. They were, had alternative lifestyles that included many, many acres of organic gardens in a North Shore estate. DDT planes came and sprayed them anyhow, despite their protests a number of times, as they did frequently on Long Island. I ran behind the trucks on Long Island. You may have seen pictures of Jones Beach and the like. As I like to say to college audiences, you know, if you're going to grow up and pollute and dump chemicals on people, that sort of thing, never ever pick on rich people. Bad idea. Marjorie Lined up all of the people on North Shore, Long Island, Island, these were various uh, daughters uh, of the the Whitney estate is up there, of the Whitney's, uh, Robert Cushman Murphy, a well-known ornithologist, a number of wealthy neighbors, and they brought suit. And that is what put this on the map. That is why people began to take action. And Marjorie was an organizer before social media. She had something, an old thermofax machine. Even I don't know what it is. I never had one. But it evidently is smoky. It's sort of like a fax. But it, and she sent scientific articles, legal research to Rachel and a network around the country. Rachel had many contacts, as I tried to say, but so did Marjorie. And they were all part of this committee against mass poisoning. And the suit in 1957-58 is when Rachel started and proposed that we do something and write. She wasn't sure she wanted to do it. She thought about having E.B. White do it. Uh, But ultimately, people said, you know, Rachel, you're the only one who can really do this and make a mark because you are a beloved, best-selling ocean author. Uh, But that's the real catalyst is spraying. That gave rise to the Environmental Defense Fund and other New York groups that became national.
0: Um, I just wanted to make a statement up here in front. Um, oh, <laughs> <laughs> that um, I want to mention uh, in your book, you had mentioned that um, there was a study done on educated women to see if it affected their mental health.
1: Yeah. <laughs> well, that let's see the the person. One of the women in here is called Ellen Swallow Richards, and she was the. Uh, it's such a long story. We, we, Do we have three more hours? Can we keep the library open? Um, She was the first woman at MIT. Uh, She was a brilliant student at Vassar, got her MA there, worked with the leading uh, 19th century astronomer, Mariah Mitchell, who had recommended her to MIT. Um, It had just opened. She didn't know they didn't take women. She came with all these recommendations. She got a letter from the president and said, you may be admitted. It was very late. She didn't know that the trustees argued for four weeks, they gave her, she discovered later, special status. She wasn't a real student. She was sort of a auditor. And she worked as an assistant to the sole woman on campus who maintained the equipment in the chemistry lab. Ultimately, she was headed toward the first PhD in chemistry at MIT, and the trustees met again and voted not to have a woman get the first PhD. And she ultimately began... To have to look, as Rachel and many of these women did elsewhere, uh, did water quality studies, first maps of uh, pollution in our country and water pollution, but ultimately she also was a champion of women's education and women's rights and uh, wrote about uh, and disputed the studies that at the time, again, it was believed that if women studied too much, it would shrink their, their uterus, it would change their personality, and I mean it was just weird stuff. So uh, that's a a very important piece of it, and a number of the women, the historical women, were involved in multiple causes. In the old, old days, anti-slavery, Underground Railroad, they also were involved in orphanages, and caring for the poor, women's education, women's suffrage. They saw these as interconnected, and that's why Rachel Carson is so cool. Oh, Ellie Kelly has to have a question. <laughs> no, no, I, I think. i a bad subject, and that is the backlash for, from, about DDT. Oh. <laughs> oh, that. Well, if you Google enough, which, you know, if you're an insomniac, and there you are, you're just punching away at your computer, particularly around 2007, which was Rachel's 100th birthday, it kicked up a set of right-wing attacks on Rachel Carson as the, uh, as the cause of genocide in Africa, that she was responsible for the deaths of millions of Africans, that the blood of the hands of tens of millions of Africans was on Rachel Carson. This was Rush Limbaugh, Glenn Beck, and many, many others. Uh, and you can still, if you Google around enough, you will find this. Uh, it's that kind of false logic. That Rachel wrote about DDT. It later was banned in the United States, and I happened to participate in a treaty that almost banned it in 2001. And here's where the story gets interesting. I think um, we banned a number of twelve of the worst chemicals in the United States first: DDT, dieldrin, aldrin, heptachlor, and others. But they weren't banned internationally, and so the companies just manufactured them, shipped them overseas. So uh, there was work to get an international treaty to ban the very same chemicals. I was running Physicians for Social Responsibility. We were an official UN. You come to the negotiations. I also had friends in the State Department. And, uh, and so we worked to get a treaty that became known as the Stockholm Convention to ban these things. And they almost all were banned except EDT, which um, got a phase-out and a public health emergency exemption if you could document that you were having a runaway breakout epidemic of malaria, usually in Africa, you could do targeted spraying where DDT is quite effective in killing mosquitoes. Let's be clear about that. Um, So it was not banned. The truth is also that many of the mosquitoes had developed resistance, and there had been long problems with using DDT anyhow. Um, And I actually argued with the people attacking, not Rachel Carson yet, but American environmentalists. uh, They would go to the African delegations trying to kill a treaty and say, these overweight, white, American, North American. Well, I may have been. But what they were saying was that this is cultural genocide. They And some of the big groups, American environmental groups, wanted to ban DDT immediately on a date certain. They would show pictures of 25,000 Swainson's hawks in South America who had died in a field that had been sprayed. Now, picture yourself an African where... There are a million cases. Children are dying every day from malaria. And some guy who's up to stir up trouble says, you know, those American environmentalists don't care about Africans, African life. They're genocidal. I mean, I've watched this then. This is before the attacks on Rachel Carson. All to scuttle that treaty. It didn't work. In fact, we worked very hard to make this compromise so the DDT could occasionally be used to save lives. So it's all, that's, more than you wanted to know ellie but that's uh, it's just it 's amazing how people attack the people on the mountaintop. Many are killed as you know uh, it is a it 's a theme that also runs through this book. I will just say Albert Schweitzer, I mentioned him when he gave a speech in one thousand nine hundred and fifty two a Nobel Peace Prize on the radio attacking nuclear weapons tests. They put him under CIA and FBI surveillance in Africa. Opened his mail. Began a smear campaign against him. When Dr. Ben Spock, who I worked with at Sane, who was the beloved baby pediatrician, with a you know sold as much as Rachel Carson, as soon as he spoke out about against the draft, was charged with conspiracy and considered a subversive. The list goes on. They considered Dr. Alice Hamilton a subversive. <laughs> by that time, well, anyhow. She was worried about Sacco and Vanzetti back in in World War I days. Um, But that is the risk that many of these people uh, face and pay and often are willing to, but we can't let that go on. And so that's another thing I think to watch out for. And the same peddlers of doubt about tobacco, about DDT, about global climate change, huge corporations and their PR people, always casting doubt on the science. Isn't it true, Dr. that you don't know exactly which drop caused the cancer. Well, no, I don't. We do something called epidemiology, and I don't have time to explain it to you. They're always trying to cast doubt so they can continue, and they see it in their interest. I mean, they're there; they run a business. It has to function, and etc. So, well, you got me on a nice rant, Ellie. I was going to end on a high note. This has been wonderful. I do hope, I I have to, I am an organizer a bit as well as a preacher. My grandfather was also a Presbyterian minister, and I won't go there now. But I have a sign-up sheet for the Rachel Carson Council. There are also envelopes. Anything else, if you're interested, please join with us. I know many of you already belong. And then I'm going to go sit behind that table out there. Oh, I'm going to sit here, near the vodka. Okay. Thank you all so much. is my privilege to be with you.